I've often quoted as saying I would rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the Boston Telephone Directory than by the 2,000 people on the faculty of Harvard University. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. They share our beliefs, our convictions, our hopes, and our dreams. These are the conservatives of the heart. They are our people. Join the best in the movement. It's Conservative Conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Marlo and Nate. Today, James Poulos, the author of Human Forever, his recently published book, is joining us to discuss his book, Tech, the Human Soul, and How to Save It from the Digital Apocalypse. Welcome, James. Uh, Marlo, Nate, good to be with you. Now, before I continue, just wanted to clarify, is it, is your book published or is it like, are you preparing to publish it? Is it like out yet? As of this very moment that we are speaking, the, the NFTs of the book, a uh, hundred of them have sold out in 24 hours and 50 minutes, which is awesome. a nice round number. And when the, uh, when the, the, the primary market for the NFTs is officially closed out, uh, subsequent to that, the book uh, will go on sale in a mass market paperback form. Cool. So well, I actually have a question for you about NFTs, which you're going to have to describe to, I mean, my, my husband talks about crypto all the time, but I kind of tune it out. So maybe you could like describe it to us and for our listeners. But before we talk about NFTs and uh, Bitcoin and crypto, um, I wanted to switch to our listener question of the week, which comes from Zahi, who says that he hasn't read much of the book yet, but which I assume he's read excerpts. But from what he's heard on the Martyr Make podcast about it, it seems like your analysis, James, is similar to Mark Fisher's capitalist capitalist realism. Uh, Zahi's question is, do you see a lot of your work meld with a certain element of leftist thought about the future in technology, such as capitalist realism? And how does your work differ? Well, you know, I, I think it's interesting that uh, within within my lifetime, anyway, uh, it was once on the left where you could get the real edgy takes about how, you know, a, a global complex of corporations was sort of bad for America and how the military industrial complex and the intelligence community did not always have our best interests at heart and were undermining, uh, if not actively replacing our, our form of government and our way of life. You know, Ted Kaczynski was viewed as sort of this crazy leftist and to be sure he was crazy, but you know, the, these, these categories are, are more fluid than, than people are sometimes led to believe. And I'm sorry to say, you know, we're, we're in the midst of a, a digital civil war of sorts, uh, and those in charge have been quite active in trying to uh, neutralize um, all criticism of the regime from the left. Uh, you know, they've managed to, to really stamp out everyone except for, for Glenn Greenwald and a couple other people, uh, you know, but the Bernie Sanders movement is totally dead. They've been completely co-opted. Uh, and what that means is, you know, kind of all of that, that anti, I mean, I call it this, the cyborg vivarium, this, this, this effort to create a, a fusion between human consciousness and technology and to onboard everyone into this kind of woke social credit system, you know, all the criticism of that, uh, and the way that it's, that it's implicated, uh, in the, the, uh, the regime and it's, it's various tentacles, you know, that comes out of the right. And so, you know, I, I think my, my paper trail is is pretty clear that I've, I've been comfortably positioned on the right low these many years. Um, but it's true that, you know, there are some folks, uh, who consider themselves still to be relatively speaking on the left, uh, who have, you know, serious concerns about the way that our, our form of government and way of life are being technologized out from under us by the people in charge. Uh, you know, this, this is, this is a human concern. Uh, preserving a, a human, recognizably human way of life uh, and using, you know, grabbing hold of, of technological tools to, to force them to do that for us, uh, to, to help defend us uh, and keep us human. You know, that's something that, that anyone can and, and should be concerned with right now. Uh, so the, the political valences are interesting. The sands are shifting. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's been a long time for me on the right, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Yeah, I often joke that I sometimes feel like I'm a 1980s leftist when I'm talking about everything from the CIA and the FBI to corporate power uh, to any number of things that it seems like there there has been some kind of uh, inversion or, or realignment on. Well, you know, let, let, let me just also say this. Steve Saylor has referred to the Cold War as a 
a global war for control of the global left. And I think there's, you know, if you just look at the historical record, what you see is that World War II ends uh, and the U.S. really just just betrays its its imperialist allies after World War II. Uh, and you can say that that was a great act of justice. And in certain ways it was. But, you know, for for the various heads of state, it was quite a shock to them. And they were horrified to discover that the U.S. no longer supported them as all of their colonies started to break away. Someone might say, well, this is the United States of America. You can't be serious thinking that the U.S. is going to defend colonialism. And there's truth to that. But really, you know, it was all about communism and communism spreading around the world uh, and the U.S. wanting, above all, to make sure that uh, that the entire uh, left movement in the world did not slip in, into communist, uh, communist hands. Um, and that was more or less accomplished. But, but the way in which the political right in the U.S., uh, was easily persuaded uh, to go anti-communist. Um, I think you know ended up revealing that uh, that uh, earning the loyalty of the political right in the U.S. was not enough to build a global movement. Like conservatism in America <clears throat> has been, I think, quite different from from you know right-wing thought uh, uh, around the world, especially in Europe. Um, I know a lot of folks, you know, some of whom are my friends are working right now to kind of change that in interesting ways. But for the powers that be in the U.S., like it, it was just the case that even if you got the, the right on your side domestically, it wasn't enough to marshal a, a global coalition against communism. Uh, and so there was real pressure, you know, to be to be generous toward uh, toward the folks in charge for a minute. Uh, there was real pressure and a recognition that, you know, they really needed to to kind of co-opt the left in order to uh, to build out a an effective global coalition against communism, and that is, you know, I think arguably that is what they did. Uh, and then when you had the the notional fall of of communism, uh, you had these questions opening up about about what next, uh, and uh, and the the way in which uh, you know what what uh, what Biden and Kerry and company call the like to call the the, the rules based international order, you know, sort of globalized Western American led. Uh, global governance. The way that came together, its foundation was was uh, firmly in in a in a leftist key. Uh, and what we're dealing with is you know a regime uh, that's now very hyper concentrated and very focused on uh, on recapturing control of machines that they thought would do its bidding. You know, you go back to 2016, they thought that you know social media was was their friend and they had it in the bag. And in fact, no, uh, digital, they didn't understand what they had created, did something very different. Uh, and so now they're trying to impose this, this you know, very centralized, very corporatist, uh, very compliance-driven uh, regime on top of a, a popularist uh, left foundation. <laughs> you know, that's a recipe for conflict, and conflict is exactly what we're getting. I'm looking forward to getting into you, uh, into the, the, the specifics of uh... American power on the international stage um, in the in the digital era, but I think just really briefly as an aside for our listeners, um, if you'd like to submit a question for the next episode, just leave a review of the show wherever you're listening and leave a question in your review or, or DM us on social media, um, and you can find us on, on all platforms as at ISI, or you can DM any of the the podcast hosts individually. Yeah, I, I just wanted to um, ask before we move on to our books of the week, if you think, and this can be more, you know, fleshed out in in the you know proper interview format once we get to it. But do you think COVID, based off what you just said, James, has um, kind of advanced what you just described, kind of creating, um, or, or is it kind of a uh, retaliation for that slipping of the, the kind of the social media as a tool of? enhancing uh, the left's kind of grasp on emerging technologies? And do you think COVID is them just doubling down on that? Well, I think what you've seen is really a move toward, you know, a Western style of communism that's different from what you've got in China. You know, the, the Chinese have been <clears throat> focused on, on maintaining order amidst chaos for thousands of years. And, uh, you know, in the West, Things tend to go in the opposite direction, you know, out of uh, out of out of chaos springs order is how we like to think about it uh, much of the time. Uh, and I think that's, you know, I think that's misleading in, in, in certain ways and that it's influencing uh, how so many folks who would consider themselves to be on the left have been moved so rapidly and so powerfully from a frame of mind where, you know, don't be judgmental. Everyone should do their own thing, you know, like 
down with the man, down with the, the state into a mode that is not what John Lennon was singing about. It was not imagine there's no heaven. It is build heaven on earth. Uh, and that's kind of the, the communist promise. That's, you know, that's this is Gnostic theology, which, which is coming back in a big way. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that the what, what seems to be a shocking, you know, sudden transformation is really just uh, the result of, uh, of the formative effect of digital technology on people's inner and, and, and outer lives. Uh, suddenly, uh, you know, many, many folks on the left and not just on the left uh, feel as if they've woken up and, you know, the, their, their reason for, for bothering to be human has been going away. You know, people don't want to work at Chipotle anymore. People don't want to have kids anymore. People don't want to go to church anymore. They don't really even want to just live in the pod, eat the bugs, watch the porn. You know, that's not, there's no savor in it. It's not uh, very inspiring. And in that that collapse of of sort of normy normy left dreams, uh, people are scrambling for something that is that would justify the the trouble of being human. You know, the just the the inescapable limitations and pain and suffering and challenges and tragedy and struggle of human life. Uh, and they're beginning to resent having to do that. They look at these digital entities that are flying around invisibly in infinite numbers. And, you know, they, they feel envious. Why can't we be like that? Why do we have to be trapped in these meat bags? You know, like, surely there's something better. Surely I don't have to just sit here and suffer. Surely I don't have to just live and die. Uh, you know, it's just surreal bitterness. Um, and that, that bitterness is unfortunately fuel for, uh, for a regime that clearly wants to move away from a representative form of government, that clearly wants to bring an end to the American way of life as we knew it. Uh, and, and onboard people into, you know, a, an official metaverse uh, where, you know, they, they uh, give up on being human and they really merge with their technology uh, and, uh, and shift their con the, the locus of their consciousness onto their, their avatar or avatars and just fly around in a, you know, in a playground that's bigger than the universe, um, in, a, in a map that's bigger than the territory. That's that's the promise. And, you know, did Karl Marx foresee this? Like, no, not really. He was, you know, very, very naively and, you know, Friedrich Engels even more so being sort of the, the Protestant son of, you know, wealthy sort of bourgeois industrialists who were supporting him at home to sit around and write fan fiction about the end of history on earth. Uh, you know, but they were still quite naive. You're like, oh, you'll be a fisherman in the morning and sort of a critic in the afternoon and, you know, very bucolic. They did not anticipate that, uh, that the internet would come along and, uh, and offer, you know, a, a, a degree of escape from our humanity uh, that is not just different, but different in kind. So before we talk more about that black pill that was that you just talked about briefly, um, what books are you uh, reading this week? I realize you're probably busy, you know, promoting your book. And um, but I mean, even if it's books that you've recently read or that inspired uh, Human Forever, what are you reading? Um, this is, you know, this is a great question. It's a great way of putting uh, someone on the spot. And, uh, <laughs> and so as I stare into camera here and rack my, rack my brains, what am I reading? Oh, okay. So, you know, I, I've, uh, I've read not, not all of, of John le Carre's works of, uh, you know, great spy novels, um, but most of them. And uh, le Carre, you know, of special interest to me since he was a guy, I think it was like 20, 2011 or so, uh, when he wrote a novel called Our Kind of Traitor, I believe, um, about a, uh, a Russian oligarch who attempted to, uh, to turn himself in to British intelligence in exchange, of course, for the protection of his wealth, the protection of his family, and the protection of his life. Uh, and in the book, he tries to, you know, he, he sort of reaches out to this uh, to this couple who he plays tennis with in uh, Anguilla or whatever, you know, somewhere in the Caribbean. And it's, you know, very suspenseful and dramatic and everything. But but the interesting thing about this book is during the promotional campaign, uh, Le Carre basically openly said, I mean, he could only he could only go so far uh, with insinuation, but I think it was it was pretty clear that the UK was was bailed out during the financial crisis uh, through laundering uh, Russian mafia cash because, you know, when the Federal Reserve wasn't going to bail out the Royal Bank of Scotland and there's, you know, some kind of government emergency fund. Uh, but where'd the money come from? You know, where do you find billions upon billions of liquid capital if you're if you're London and your financial system is is two days away from complete collapse? 
Uh, there are only so many places to to go looking. Um, <clears throat> and so, who was, you know, who is who is the the actual person in uh, British intelligence uh, running the Russia desk during the financial crisis? Who would have known? Uh, about you know where where all the bodies are buried uh, that that Lecure was alluding to, and that was a man named Christopher Steele. Uh, and so, for those who are playing along at home in the the Russia Gate, uh, you know, uh, sweepstakes, looking at at Steele and saying like, oh, this is just a retired former spy, and no, he was not. These guys at that level never retire. Uh, Orbis business intelligence is not just some like way that he's. You, wanted to, you know, make, make a few extra bucks after he retired from, from MI6. I mean, we've got to be honest about what's going on and just exactly what, what is entailed in this, uh, in this digital civil war. That's not just playing out in the U S but across the West, um, high stakes questions about, you know, what form of government are we going to have in the digital age? Like how is the human person going to be required to interact with technology? Who's going to do the requiring on what basis? These are all civilization level questions that go right down to the heart of the deepest unique resources that we have in our civilization. Um, I, you know, I would submit that American civilization, especially at this point, is just different from from British uh, or or European civilization. Of course, there are some affinities, uh, but you know, just looking at the way that that the Brits have gotten so deeply involved in uh, in American statecraft, uh, whether it's Steele or you know Peter Daszak, the the head of Eco Health Alliance. Uh, you know, right at the heart of the the COVID uh, situation, uh, there's there's another guy. Uh, uh, oh man, I mean, it's the the the, the tunnels go very deep, and uh, if you follow the trails, you will discover uh, Martin Nowak, another guy, uh, Jeffrey Epstein's favorite uh, scientist, big Oxford guy, who you know was was recruited to come to the U.S. by who we don't really know. Uh, Epstein, you know, waved uh, waved around, I think, nine million dollars, got him up to Harvard. Uh, and that was how Epstein got, you know, his his pass key on campus and his own office and his own phone line and freedom of movement around Harvard. Uh, these things are all are all connected. And you don't have to be a sort of crazy man in the basement drawing, you know, sort of uh, yarn maps on your your corkboard in order to recognize um, that these things are uh, are a very real part of uh, of why. Um, America's political fortunes right now are seem to be so so crazy and 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 diverting so strongly away from what so many Americans want. So what I'm reading right now uh, is uh, is Lecure's book on uh, on big pharma, uh, his book where where pharma is the enemy. Uh, that's the constant gardener. I'm only about uh, three or four chapters in, uh, but you know the guy got around and uh, he had many connections and spent time in lots of different places and saw things that he couldn't write about directly. And so he wrote about them indirectly. Uh, and I think, you know, if Americans are trying to get a grip on, on which foreign governments are really uh, uh, asserting themselves in terms of, of influencing the, the course of our government and its priorities, uh, LeCure is a pretty good place to start. Cool. What about you, Nate? I'm actually just reading. Um, I'm still reading the book I read like last week and two weeks ago because I've been busy traveling. So, Nate, are you reading anything interesting now? I, I actually am. It's um, it's it's relevant since uh, James was a contributor. But this is a it's a blast from the past. I think it came out in 2009, right after the big Obama blue wave. But it's called Proud to Be Right: um, Voices of the uh, James is is shaking his head for for the listeners. It's um, it's a hilarious bl- a blast from the past because it's an essay compilation compilation all about the next generation of conservatives in 2009. So they're all old fogies now, present company excluded. But uh, it's it's organized by Jonah Goldberg. And it has essays from James, like Matt Peterson, uh, Michael Brennan Doherty, Michael Warren Davis, I think was in. I mean, it's a very weird, wild sort of ideological cast of people. Um, Helen's in there. Helen Andrews. Is, yeah, it's, it's Helen Andrews. Yeah. That's what wow. I thought. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's a super interesting sort of uh, snapshot um, in time of a lot of people who are, you know, pretty, pretty well known in the conservative movement now, but are not necessarily uh, on the same side of the conservative movement, all kind of um, discoursing with one another uh, in their, in their youth. Um, and it's a, it's a really fun book. So anyone who's interested in, in the sort of debates in conservatism and the different figures and, and wings of conservatism and what they, what they thought and were writing about when they were young, um, it's, it's worth checking out. I, I couldn't, I couldn't, sorry. I, I, I mean, yeah, I, I couldn't help but laugh uh, insofar as, you know, a, a big part of that, 
that essay or chapter or whatever you want to call it was, you know, me just sort of laying out how if you really wanted to understand the experience of of young, especially young guys on the right at the time, like you need to understand what Fight Club was trying to say. Nobody cared in 2009. Uh, and here we are, you know, more than 10 years later, and it's all anyone talks about. So if only they'd read Proud to be Right. <laughs> it was James's essay is called Growing Up Conservative in a Disrupted Decade. But of course, this was the previous decade, I guess, technically two decades ago now, if it was 2009. Um, so I don't even know if if 2000 to 2010 was a disrupted decade. I'm, you know, it seems like uh, life has only become more uncertain and uh, much more sort of um, chaotic since then in America and the West more broadly. We're going to talk to James about that in a second. But before we continue with our interview, I'd like to thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you would like to help us in that mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. Um, so James, we've already you know gotten into it a fair amount, but just to back up for a second, tell us about your book. Tell us about Human Forever. What inspired you to write the book um, on tech and why I think in particular are you taking a uh, a spiritual or, or metaphysical uh, angle on the question. Sure. So Human Forever, The Digital Politics of Spiritual War. That's the book. Uh, it's under 300 pages, so it's, uh, it is not too demanding on the reader. I wanted to do that. It's, I wanted to do something timely, uh, something that was going to be stale by the time it finally got out the door. Um, and, uh, you know, here we are in, in, in current year 2021, major publishers are panicking because they've got, they're facing six to seven month paper shortage uh, problems due to supply chain stuff. Uh, so, um, you know, I went, I went a different path. I did my, I did my Tocqueville book, uh, in, uh, in 2017, the old fashioned way, uh, through, you know, one of the big five publishers and, uh, looked great. It showed up in every Barnes and Noble in America, I guess, um, seemed, seemed like a success, you know, did the, did the rounds interview in the Washington post, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, you know, felt, felt good. Uh, sugar rush, uh, came home. You know, hadn't worked in a couple months. All the food in the fridge was rotten. Uh, and I felt utterly spent. I felt like I'd shot my shot and, you know, sort of woke up the next morning and sat down in front of the laptop and, you know, had to just continue to be an idea, a one-man ideas festival. Um, it was it was dispiriting. And I felt as if I had been exhausted um, and that if I had to just keep cranking out hot takes, then... I might just step off of my balcony. I was living in downtown LA at the time before it got really crazy. Um, and so, uh, you know, obviously Trump coming into office and all the, the chaos surrounding that pretty quickly, I figured out that, um, as a, a political theorist by trade, you know, a, a doctor of government at uh, Georgetown, they don't, they don't do political science. It's government. If I didn't have anything to say about, uh, the role that digital technology was playing in uh, moving people away from where I argued they should go in the Tocqueville book, which is, oh, yeah, so, you know, America is kind of inherently crazy, but we have the resources that we need to sort of pursue friendship and freedom together. People are like, no, we don't want to be friends. We don't want to be free. We want to be more insane. And I needed to be able to address that. And if, if there wasn't a way for me to do that, then I, I figured that, you know, academic political theory deserved to die and, and sink into obsolescence in the way that so many of these academic disciplines uh, do. And that was before Wokeness took over the academy. So, uh, you know, it just took, took a couple of years. Beginner's mindset, uh, going, going back to square one, you know, not, not setting my, my political theory knowledge on fire, but, uh, but tilling some fresh soil with uh, Marshall McLuhan and, you know, Neil Postman and others. Uh, and just kind of, you know, learned from, from square one, you know, what digital technology really is, what a medium is, what, what, uh, what communications theory is, how it works, um, <clears throat> and how it interfaced with, uh, with the fundamental questions about human nature, about human destiny and about, uh, about political order. Um, you know, that took, took a while to do. Uh, and at first people were like, uh, you know, uh, I don't understand what you're saying. Um, but I had to learn on the job. Uh, I had to learn on the fly, and uh, and you know by uh, by this this year, um, I felt like uh, you know, the the crazy things that I was saying kept coming true, and so maybe I was onto something. Uh, and just felt 
the urgency to write something uh, and do it differently and do it in a way that really underscored uh, what was what was in the box, kind of modeled what was in the box of the book. Uh, and so I linked up with a friend of mine uh, who uh, created a a um, an on chain uh, Bitcoin denominated uh, website for uh, self publishing, buying and selling books and NFTs. Uh, it's called Canonic. It's Canonic.xyz. Uh, and it became clear to me that this was this was the way for this book. Uh, the medium was the message. I could write it in, you know, I, I think I got most of it done in about three weeks. Uh, got got myself a little mini sabbatical from from uh, our great president, Ryan Williams at Claremont. Uh, knocked it out. Uh, no editors, no agent, no gatekeepers, no Bezos, no Amazon Web Services. No, like blasting out every, you know, sad, sorry person in your Rolodex, begging them to click and buy so that it gooses your week one numbers. Uh, no, you know, paper supply chaos. Uh, none of it. Uh, managed to sidestep it all. Uh, get the book up on Canonic. Um, sold out of the NFTs, you know, in, in uh, just over 24 hours. Uh, paperback sales will be coming soon. I got a private printer, private paper supplies. Um, you know, things have really, really changed in a very short period of time uh, from where we used to be. And I think it's tremendously empowering. And, you know, it's, it's really a privilege and an honor to be able to model to people that like right now, you know, we can we can grab hold of these technologies right now and put them to good use uh, rather than passively sitting back and going, oh, it seems complicated. I don't understand the jargon. You don't need to know how to code to know how to take, you know, take hold of technologies like Bitcoin and create culture, create a culture that's memorable, that's valuable, uh, that increases you know, wealth and worth for those in your community, um, and really build like a new financial asset, new institutions on top of the blockchain, rather than you know, sitting around worrying about how to you know, wrench back these sort of old crumbling institutions from, uh, from people who hate you. Uh, I think that's it's really powerful and it's fun too. It's, it's been a really good experience and uh, it, it, was, uh, it was a perfect way for me to get my message across, which was, you know, I have a son who's 12 years old. He's going to be coming of age very soon. Um, and for kids his age, you know, they have really no, no memory of life before the smartphone. Uh, and that makes them kind of the first fully digital generation in America. Uh, and so their parents, you know, their fathers uh, have a special duty and a special dispensation to, uh, to, to raise them, uh, to give them rites of passage uh, that, uh, that continue the, you know, the, the unbroken human chain, the, the memory of, of who we are and who we've always been, uh, the, the memory that we have souls, uh, that our bodies are sacred, um, that, uh, that being human is a gift and not a curse. I want to ask you specifically, I think about the, the, the last sort of subject that, um, you touched on there, because one of the things I appreciate about your book is that because you're approaching it from the question of what it means to be human in the digital age and the challenge of continuing to be authentically human in the digital age, uh, it moves beyond the sort of relatively narrow political debates over technology that seem to preoccupy us on both the left and the right, right? Misinformation, free speech on, on social media platforms, you know, the radicalization, et cetera. Like there's a, there's a sort of set uh, narrow and, and relatively formulaic way that the left and the right talk about something like big tech. And to be clear, like, you know, um, I'm really concerned about uh, big tech's threat to free speech as well. So I, I take those issues seriously. But there's also so many more fundamental questions that I feel like a lot of folks in conservative legacy institutions at least aren't asking. And one of the things I appreciate about your book is that you're asking those questions. But um, I mean, I, I would just love to hear you. You sort of touched a little bit about trying to reclaim um, technology in a way where we rule technology, technology doesn't rule us, we maintain our, our sovereignty over our technology. But can you talk a little bit about the, the challenge of being human in the digital age and, and how you think we can go about continuing to uh, maintain our personhood in the face of things like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's uh, metaverse and, and all these other challenges to our humanity? Well, sure. I mean, I think you've seen over the past, you know, 50 years or so, just to compress things a little bit, uh, two kinds of optimism. And the first was a sort of false optimism in our humanity. You know, this is, this is John Lennon. This is Willy Wonka. This is your imagination will save you. Your dreams are what make you pure. Um, if you can dream it, you can do it. There's nothing like pure imagination. It's easy if you try, uh, you know, all of that messaging that has been, 
reinforced uh, throughout our culture and really made America kind of the most powerful meme in the world during the, the pre-digital era when television was the most powerful communications medium. Um, <clears throat> that, that optimism about our humanity uh, denied uh, the, the reality of, um, of our human condition, you know, that we are errant creatures, uh, that we are incarnate and ensouled creatures who are mortal and are born to die. Uh, and, uh, and we, we can't just step into the world and expect things to be perfect or expect that having the, the best of intentions will lead to the best results. Uh, but that was the ethical framework that arose and it was a powerful one, uh, because of the medium in which it arose and, and how that medium shaped our senses and sensibilities. You know, uh, what happened on screen was more important than what happened off screen. You were a star because of your, your avatar on screen, not because of who you were in, in real life. Uh, and, and so the, the generations that rose to power under that regime, really expected that, you know, if they applied their best of intentions and, and dreamed their most ethical dreams while they were creating any technology, it would serve them, uh, that it would advance their goals, that it would, it would be their friend, ultimately, uh, a, an obedient, you know, sort of, uh, you know, a, a confidant and a, a slave in, in a certain way. <clears throat> and, uh, and that was the legacy of Steve Jobs. Um, and that's not what happened. Uh, what happened is the, the cell phone, the smartphone became a commodity. Uh, right then, you know, uh, 2008, 2009, uh, in that sense, we all became cyborgs in a certain way. We got these things growing out of our hands that we, that we never disengage from. And when we do, we sort of like, usually we're asleep or, you know, we, uh, we don't feel too good because we're worried about what's going on in our phones. Um, that's a very intimate relationship with technology. And it's not one that united the whole world together in perfect harmony. You know, it did not buy the world a Coke. It, it, it defied the expectations of the regime and of the, the ruling culturally, you know, culturally dominant elites. Uh, and it caused them to panic when that happened. You know, wait a minute, like Vladimir Putin is, is, is seizing Crimea and wait a minute, China's building the great firewall and like, wait a minute, we're losing in Afghanistan and wait a minute, like, you know, we keep getting hacked and wait a minute, you know, uh, uh, people with, with bad opinions on the internet are, are gathering together and exercising their political agency. Like how, how did this happen? Uh, and they didn't have a good account of how that happened. And so, uh, their conclusion is, well, obviously we just need to control these machines more and we need to punish people who don't like that. Um, that is, that is where things have, have landed. Um, and I think, you know, as, as scary as it is, as dangerous as it is, as wrong as it is, if, if a form of governance does not comport with the character of the people, then it will fail. Uh, and I think this is just straight out of classical political philosophy and has been proven out time and time again. Uh, and the, just, just to, just to dot the I here. Um, and so, you know, I still think, you know, even at this moment, uh, the American people, the graft is not going to take the, the Americans are not, are not down to be herded into the cyborg vivarium. Uh, too many of them are too many of them feel as if they don't have a choice, uh, but they do very much have a choice. And this is where Bitcoin comes in. Uh, you know, this, I, I, I am not a coder. I am barely even numerate. And, uh, I was, I was very easily able to get this book up. Uh, have it have it uh, written on chain. It's uncancelable. It's unalterable. It can't be deleted by anyone but me. And I, you know, not going to do that. Uh, this is how we can win. This is how we can we can remain very, you know, very firmly pro-human, uh, very, you know, dedicated to conserving our humanity and 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 creating culture, uh, and do so in a way that's going to endure and and preserve in America uh, well into a digital age. I'm curious about the um, the ethical uh, perspective that you brought up and also the semantics of um, how we discuss ethics and technology specifically. Um, I mean, just from a Catholic perspective, I think measuring technology relative to human dignity helps us develop some heuristic for what like is a boon for humanity and what's just intended to like maximize comfort or minimize inconvenience. Like euthanasia is one thing that comes to mind, but um, it seems like what is so obscured under secularist definitions of what dignity even is um, that's 
kind of rendered words like, I mean, even justice, uh, I don't think Americans can, and, and conservatives especially, like they have not done a great job of defining what justice means to us while, while everything now on the left has been kind of co-opted as whether it's um, reproductive or, you know, environmental justice. So I'm curious about if there's a metaphysical approach to tech that can help us delineate what like human dignity even means today. Um, and if you could explain that within the scope of your book and its description of, of the human soul and ethics. Well, you know, I, I think that that many in the West allowed themselves to be convinced that order grows out of freedom. And I think that the, the deeper truth that has been um, that has been known in the West for, you know, for many centuries is that, in fact, freedom arises out of order. There's always an interrelationship, but, you know, it's it's not quite a chicken and egg. And, uh, and if you deny the existence of God and you deny the existence of the soul, and you don't have to be a Christian to believe in the soul, and you go back to Aristotle, you know, not only did he say that, that anima is sort of like the, the animating principle of, of living things, but he also said that it is the formal cause of the organism. And so, you know, actually taking that seriously, understanding what he was talking about. Um, and then if you, you know, if you deny the existence of natural law, no God, no soul, no natural law, then what is the basis for your regime? What is it being founded on? What understanding of the human is it being founded on? And I think what we're discovering is that it's an artificial foundation. It's it's a myth about the 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 um, determinacy and completeness of mathematics. Uh, you know, I, I had to make a detour into some math theory when I was working on this book. Uh, you know, math not my not my forte. But again, like you, you read Bertrand Russell one of these guys at the beginning of this whole mess. And basically he says, look, like the, the ultimate thing that a person can do, uh, the real source of, uh, of man's purpose is to contemplate the cold and austere truth of mathematics and in its perfection, you know, uh, that is our source of understanding how to organize human life on earth and maybe off earth too. Uh, this, this in a book where basically he says, you know, religion is bunk, worship math. Uh, well, that's, that's religion too. Um, and I think, you know, so much of technological advancement today is captive to people who really think that they can program machines in such a deterministic way, uh, that we can offload our responsibility for being human, uh, and for doing human things, our responsibility for creating culture and governance onto digital entities. Uh, and so there's, you know, there, one of one one aspect of the the digital civil war that's brewing. You can see this playing out every day at the upper echelons of society. Is you've got these guys who are math worshippers, um, and and they're confronted with the fact that there are like a lot of of woke people right now in and out of tech, uh, and uh, and they say like, well, you know, we're willing to accept uh, as much wokeness as necessary as long as ultimately we the priests of the cyborg vivarium are in charge. And then, you know, on the other side, you've got all these Wokies who are like, well, okay, we're willing to accept any amount of technology, any degree of technological advancement, as long as we are the priests of the cyborg vivarium and woke ethicists rule all of our institutions. Uh, and so they have a lot of, you know, they're, they're willing to concede, um, uh, the, the technologists are willing to concede a powerful role for woke ethics and the Wokies are willing to concede a powerful materialist role for, for technology. But, you know, they're, they're fighting over, over one ring to rule them all. And I think the most powerful thing that we can understand about digital technology is it took over the world. That means that no person and no group of people can take over the whole world anymore. It just isn't going to happen. Uh, you look at the way that Russia, China, India, Israel, uh, you know, the, the UK, the US, Every civilization state in the world is racing as fast as it can to figure out how to use its deepest cultural and ultimately theological resources to assert uh, political control over the digital entities within their territory. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a, a radical kind of pluralism that is not going to be swept away by, you know, people gathering in Trafalgar Square to sing Imagine or by, you know, the, the uh, intelligence community partnering with uh, the mainstream media to like meme out the same memes about, you know, building back better. Like it's not going to eat the world. Software ate the world. And so what we're dealing with is a technology that universalizes itself, but does not universalize the people who use it. And that was the big mistake that, you know, during 20, 2016, when the, the New York Times had the needle that went from, you know, a zillion percent guaranteed Hillary Clinton president to like negative infinity, you know, 
that was the mistake that they made. They, they thought that the, the technology that was universalized itself was going to uni- universalize their form of rule. And that's not what happened. Uh, and people need to recognize that and recognize that like every different one of these, 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 uh, these ancient cultures, every different one of these civilization states is going to have a distinct and different uh, judgment about uh, how to answer those ultimate theological questions. We're going to be stuck with those differences. Uh, Technology is not going to wipe them away. Uh, Wokeness isn't going to wipe them away. Uh, And in the U.S., you know, uh, some certain kind of of pluralism has always been present uh, in American life. Uh, We just have different folkways, and that's always been the case. Yeah, there's been a lot of uniformity, um, but it's it's not that simple. And uh, and so you know, one one size does not fit all for us, uh, and uh, and that's going to be true no matter how much technology we have. So you know, people in the U.S. who think like, well, you know, ultimately it's either going to be the techies take over or the wokies take over, and it's going to that's going to be American now. Um, I think that's just actually a mistaken analysis. You know, in in addition to being something that would be bad. At the end of the day, I think it's something that's just not going to happen. James, tell us about the pink police state. Pink police state. So this, you know, this goes back to the the before times. Um, I think uh, 2008, 2008, 2009, I, I first started writing about this concept. Uh, and the concept is really you know, a precursor to, to wokeness, um, a precursor to the the strategic agreement by the regime to adopt wokeness as its kind of official <clears throat> religion. Uh, in 1999, um, you saw uh, the, the U.S. Um, working overtime to globalize its uh, its economic uh, activity. Um, all these uh, accession talks and uh, global conferences to build out the international trade system. Uh, the World Trade Organization uh, uh, to bring China into the the Western economy, really, um, and uh, and they were critics. Um, they were critics, and they gathered in Seattle for for one of the big the biggest to date uh, uh, talk on on international trade organizations. Um, many of them were on the left, if if not all of them, um, and there was a huge civil disturbance. There was a huge riot. Uh, and they were using swarm tactics uh, with their with their cell phones to evade the cops and basically uh, mount a huge protest that paralyzed the city. It was called the Battle in Seattle at the time, um, and this is what really you know what really scared the elites back in the day. Uh, they had defeated communism. They thought that that wasn't a problem anymore. Uh, they were convinced that you know you just you make China rich and uh, and you'll get rich in the process but you know eventually all those people will just turn into to democracy loving liberals um, and they you know this was before 9/11 so they weren't really worried about uh, about fundamentalist uh, Islamic jihadism but even after 9/11 nobody really thought that that uh, radical Islam was going to take over the world that it was a real uh, rival to uh, to Americanism um, but what you saw in the battle in Seattle was a, a real rival to the direction that, that globalized America was going in. Uh, and so, you know, those in charge had to figure out, you know, how do we, how do we choke this thing off? How do we prevent, pre- prevent um, a, a homegrown movement uh, with deep roots on the left uh, from stopping global governance from coming into existence? Uh, and so they had limited choices, you know, like, well, we're not going to we're not going to give up corporate power. Uh, we're not going to give up tech- technological advancement. Uh, we're not going to give up uh, America's military edge. Uh, we're not going to give up, you know, all of our relationships with our our international partners. We're not going to give up the NGOs. We're not going to give up the Ford Foundation. So what are we going to give up? Um, and what they decided to give up on was, you know, public morality as it as it had been known in the West from the beginning. So uh, so suddenly the regime starts doing things like saying like, well, you know. Uh, perhaps it would be good if we doused the White House in the the colors of the rainbow flag. Perhaps it would be good if uh, you know we we legalized marijuana and maybe psychedelics. Uh, perhaps you know we should message that really what America really means is doing whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt the regime. You know, so they managed to 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 really turn on its head the. Uh, the classical maxim of libertarianism, which is do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt someone else, 
into a new kind of statism. Uh, do whatever you want so long as it doesn't hurt the regime. Uh, and so you started to see like a, a official, not just toleration, but support and really promotion of, you know, whatever manner of kind of sexual and cultural hedonistic license or deviance uh, was percolating up to the top of the stack. Um, and it's important, you know, to remember that like at, at that time, uh, before people started to realize that digital had eaten the world, um, these old, old patterns of, of life had a different valence to them than they do today. I mean, it was, it was all about gay rights back in those days. And now, you know, the, the gays are at the bottom of the totem pole. Uh, you know, you talk to Andrew Sullivan, like talk to lots of these guys, you know, they're like, wait a minute, you know, I'm, I'm now expected to be attracted to a, uh, a quote unquote trans man. You know, I, this is not what I signed up for. Um, and notably, you know, that, that rainbow flag has, has added some stripes. It's added actually quite a lot of stripes and there's no logical reason why, uh, more stripes are not coming. It is easy to envision how a cyborg stripe could be added to that flag. It is easy to envision how people who identify as, as post-human members of a swarm could be added to that flag. Uh, and it's easy to understand how, you know, back in the before times, if someone wanted to have a sex change, it was sort of like, well, you know, that's weird, but ultimately like, I guess, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to throw you in jail or anything. Uh, but now, uh, having, having that, those kinds of operations and identifying in that kind of way has a whole new meaning because it is really, you know, it's not really a sex change. It's changing into a cyborg It is the most powerful and, uh, prominent way that a human being today can demonstrate that they wield absolute technological power over their given humanity, their biological uh, identity and their biological form. Uh, and that's why, you know, that's, that's why the, the trans community quote unquote has risen to the very top of the prestige stack uh, because it, it uh, you know, it, it proves uh, to the, to the techies that technology is the most powerful force. Uh, and it proves to the Wokies that, uh, you know, if you, if you dream it, you can do it. Um, and, uh, and that's a, that's a heady cocktail. Um, and, and that's where, you know, what, what I call the pink police state wound up, uh, you know, pink, pink coming from, uh, a, a Marilyn Manson video that made a big impression on me when I was in college, uh, sort of pink policeman, uh, guarding the, the concert and making out with each other. Um, and, uh, the, you know, the line from, from Manson, who I understand, you know, his kind of horrible misdeeds have now been made public by Rolling Stone. He's likely to get canceled, uh, in 1998, you know, stars were stars and it was more difficult to peer into their lives before digital came along. Uh, but the big, you know, the big line that sort of like made me say, Hmm, was, uh, cops and queers make good looking models. Uh, and we've, you know, we found ourselves in a situation where, uh, where queerism has become a kind of official religion and where the police state, you know, being digitized, uh, has become, uh, you know, a lot of people's model form of governance. Uh, and those, those two forces, uh, the oppressive and the transgressive have really come together in a, in a single entity. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I was first writing about this, uh, I, I had no reason to really talk about cyborg vivariums. Uh, but now it's, you know, it's clear that the way they want to institutionalize this is, uh, is through a, a, a national social credit system. James, on the subject of Wokies and Techies, a question that we ask all of our guests is, what is conservatism? I'm interested in hearing what your response to that is. Well, you know, this is, some of us have been around too long in, in the sense of we've, we've heard these arguments over what true conservatism is. Um, we've heard them rage They've been going for generations now at this point uh, and no end in sight. Um, and in some sense, I think that's, that's probably fine. Uh, and in other senses, you know, uh, trying to arrive at some kind of ultimate truth about the definition of conservatism through endless rounds of, of debate, uh, there are more productive things for us to be doing. Um, you know, if someone, someone wants to call me a conservative, I'm not going to correct them or whatever, uh, you know, conserving things worth conserving is good. Uh, and thinking about how to maintain that kind of political practice is good. Uh, but there's much today that, that should not be conserved. And there's much today that cannot be conserved. And furthermore, there's much today that's being retrieved, not because, you know, suddenly people who have been advocating for these things have, have become more charismatic or powerful, but because they're being retrieved by the reformation 
um, of our inner and outer lives by digital technology. Uh, digital technology is all about machine memory. And that means that the rule of the human imagination is over. It doesn't mean that imagination sucks now and that it plays no role in our lives, but it means that the most dominant uh, formative effect technologically is one that's all about memory and all about recall. Uh, and one thing that, you know, that forces us to recall is the fact that human memory is different from machine memory, that our memories are powerful, that if we, if we neglect or give up on our memories, we're not going to make it. We're not going to be able to make sense of the world that we are in. We're not going to be able to, to see ourselves as we really are. Uh, and so, you know, these changes, I mean, you know, Patrick Deneen is a great example. Uh, you know, he's, he's been banging on about this stuff for a very long time. All the integralists, you know, all these folks, natural law guys, why are they more influential now? Um, and, you know, I mean, God love them. They're almost all of them are, are my friends or, or colleagues or associates in some form or another. Uh, but it's not like, you know, the pixie dust landed on them and they suddenly became capable of, you know, swaying the masses with their words. Like the environment has changed and it's altering people's sensibilities and it's making them realize that modern and postmodern answers to ultimate questions just don't make any sense in a digital world. They, they do not, they do not deliver the goods. There's no cheese at the end of those tunnels. Uh, those purported answers just leave people not only feeling insane, but feeling basically worthless, you know, just, just sort of like human retreads. Uh, and, and those answers don't give us what we need to understand how uh, to preserve what needs to be preserved and to conserve what we want to conserve, uh, but do it in a way that really is a new founding, uh, a new order that is, that is suited properly to the digital age that we live in. Uh, so, you know, con conservatives, spend less time arguing about what a conservative is and spend more time, you know, building new institutions uh, that, that will survive and thrive and allow us to thrive in our digital world. Well, on that note, James, thanks so much for joining us today. If people are interested in seeing more of your work or following you, where can they find you? Uh, the American Mind is, uh, is at AmericanMind.org. Uh, I'm on Twitter at James Polis, James P-O-U-L-O-S. Uh, the Clearinghouse for Book Information is at HumanForever.us, HumanForever.us. And then the book itself will be on sale real soon now at Canonic, C-A-N-O-N-I-C dot X-Y-Z. Great. Thanks again for joining us, James. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age Articles, ISI Books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI. <laughs>